Welcome to the Brazil Institute podcast, a production of the Walter Wilson Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Bruna Santos, and in the following episodes, you will listen to a different voice. I introduce you to Talita Fernandes, who will be your host in the next five episodes on the future of Brazilian democracy. Talita is an experienced journalist who has covered Brazilian politics for more than 10, than 10 years, and she's joining us for a particular project discussing the future of democracy. This series is part of Brazil 100, a project in partnership with the Brazilian Report that explores the implications of Lula's first 100 days in office. The project's interviews, podcasts, and articles will focus on the country's key challenges and the political landscape. I invite you to visit our website and to follow us on social media to gain insight into the strategies and policies that the newly elected President Lula and his team are taking. Ninguém é dono da verdade. Eu não sou o dono da verdade. Primeiramente, quem não entende do assunto é não interferir. E dar liberdade porque tem o poder para tal. Isso é mentira. Isso é uma fake news. Hello, I'm Talita Fernandes. In the second episode, we will discuss how this information affects democracy. I talked to specialists who helped me understand how the spread of fake news has poisoned Brazilian democracy. If you haven't listened to the first episode, I recommend you to go back to the previous one to understand why Brazilian democracy is under threat. But to refresh your memory, I would like to recap one crucial thing that Natalia Viana, our first guest, explained. What has been happening in Brazil is that we are facing the challenge, an unprecedented challenge, of a digital populist. This information is not a modern creation. We have to deal with not precise information since always. But we have to agree that the amplified usage of social media in the algorithm world became a huge challenge of our times. As people around the world face misinformation daily, in recent years, Journalists, scientists and researchers have dedicated part of their jobs to fighting against the spread of disinformation. In Brazil, the concern about false information has fostered discussions in the civil society, in the judiciary and in the legislative power. New bills were passed and a massive investigation on the topic was opened at the Supreme Court. But we are still far from a solution. This information has hugely impacted Brazilians' presidential elections, especially the last two. But besides politics, we also face challenges to the spread of disinformation in science. During the COVID-19 pandemic, deaths could be avoided. There was a lack of trust in scientific evidence about the disease. The world, and Brazil of course, are also facing a climate change problem. The spread of false information is a problem in this topic. To introduce how this phenomenon impacts Brazilian democracy, I asked for some help from specialists. In the first episode, Natalia Viana, from Agência Pública, affirmed that the attempt of a coup on January 8th in Brazil would not be possible without social media. 
And this is why I chose to dedicate this episode to discussing the role of misinformation in the threat to democracy. We will start this conversation by talking to David Nehmer, a Brazilian professor at the Media Studies Department of the University of Virginia. Thank you for joining us here. Could you please introduce yourself and your research topic? So my name is David Nehmer. I'm an assistant professor of Media Studies at the University of Virginia. Um, my work basically tries to understand this relationship between technology and society. Uh, my book just came out called Technology of the Oppressed, which is a 10-year-long ethnographic research that I'm looking into the ways that folks in the favelas of Brazil appropriate technologies for their own liberations and whether or not technology can really fulfill that promise of empowering the marginalized, which, as I can tell, it doesn't always. Uh, but more recently, I've been researching uh, misinformation, more specifically in Brazil, and the rise of the far right. Thank you for that, Nimr. I would like to ask you how we could introduce the main events that help us understand why and when this information became a significant challenge to Brazilian society. I've been doing this research since 2018 uh, when Bolsonaro became a prominent candidate in the 2018 presidential elections. What happened was, as Bolsonaro was gaining popularity, he followed uh, Steve Bannon's playbook and started attacking and trying to le delegitimize the press in Brazil. People saw this as simply as an attack against the press because the, the press was very critical of Bolsonaro, given the things that he would say. But it was part of a long plan because by delegitimizing and attacking the press, then his followers will no longer consume information from these channels. Instead, they would consume information or misinformation from specific sources of information that was stipulated by the Bolsonarism as a movement. And that space became social media. More specifically, uh, WhatsApp groups. WhatsApp is this very popular uh, messaging app in Brazil and around the world. And I say this because some Americans don't know what WhatsApp is. It's, it's the largest App in Brazil, 99% of smartphones in the country uh, has WhatsApp installed and people use it as their main means of communication. So in those groups, people started creating this echo chamber where they would only believe the things that they identified with. In other words, the things that would promote Bolsonaro as a candidate. They would not believe in, them, in anything beyond you know, those groups. Uh, those groups were very well administrated and managed by folks that would serve as gatekeepers of what kind of information would make into those groups. And by then, they were so embedded in this ecosystem of disinformation that anything that would be that sounded critical or against Bolsonaro, they would immediately refute that information. Thus, they became very easy to manipulate because they already trusted those sources of information. 
And then there, as, as you know, the folks in the higher, in the higher hierarchy of this disinformation scheme, they were able to orchestrate specific disinformation campaigns and get people to believe in them. One example, uh, which I believe Americans will be able to relate is that, you know, even before the presidential political campaign for this year's election, Bolsonaro was already saying that uh, he would he would not he had questions about the the electoral system that if he didn't win, then there was something very wrong with the voting machines. So with that, in those groups, people created this parallel reality that the victory Bolsonaro's victory of Bolsonaro's reelection is the only way. Any other outcome, it would be because you know the 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 elections were stolen or they were fraudulent. So since they won, they believed in that. And because they were so sure that Bolsonaro was going to win, even though the polls were showing otherwise, but the polls were only shared outside those groups. They were not shared inside those groups. Inside those groups, they shared completely manipulated polls from research institutes that people never heard from, never heard about. But it was polls that only showed Bolsonaro winning. So they were so detached from reality that they truly believed that Bolsonaro was going to win. And if he didn't, if he didn't, then it was because it was fraudulent. Because of that, as Bolsonaro lost, then they did not accept the loss. So they started camping in front of military headquarters, demanding the military forces to promote a military coup in the country, take over power so they could reinstate Bolsonaro as a president. They were there since um, November 1st, which was right after the, the second round of votes in Brazil or the runoff when Lula won. And they were there. They were, you know, praying for the, for the, uh, for the army to do something. They would create, you know, all these, these chains of prayers, of delusional thoughts to get the military to do something. Obviously, the military didn't do what they were asking, but they insisted until, uh, you know, what happened in January, until happening what we saw in January 8th, when they no longer decided to wait and decided to break into Congress and the Supreme Justice, Supreme, uh, Supreme Court, as an attempt to promote a civil coup so they could reinstate um, Bolsonaro as a president. So this is just a quick timeline of how we went from these WhatsApp and Telegram pro-Bolsonaro groups to an actual coup attempt happening last January 8th. When we try to understand how misinformation is spread, one of the questions we ask ourselves is, why do people believe on that and why they distribute false information? So Nimer helped me on this. So when we're thinking about disinformation, um, we, can, we cannot blame lack of education as you know, a strong pillar that supports that, social, that, that sort of phenomenon. It's a multifaceted problem that requires a multifaceted solution. So, 
He goes from, you know, your political ideology, from your lack of empathy, you know, with the other, uh, lack of experience, other people's lifestyle, for example, so they know exactly what is happening on the other side. I mean, this is why these people believe so much in crazy things like cultural Marxism or gender ideology, as if, uh, you know, there's an actual plan in the schools to turn people gay. You know, they believe these things because they lack this empathy or life experience because they are not there to see with their eyes. And because they're so detached from reality that anything that is shared in these if this information ecosystems, they will believe because they have this trust with folks that are sharing this content because they identify with these folks. So again, to compare Brazil and the US, we can make several distinctions, but we can also make several parallels, especially given uh, the rise in support of both far-right movements, which in the U.S. was Trump and in Brazil was Bolsonaro. So there are a lot of similarities there that don't really follow the developmental or the economic differences between both both countries. The, the effort to combat misinformation should come as a cooperation, but it doesn't mean that whatever might may work in the U.S., um, may not work in Brazil and vice versa, right? It, it, it really depends. But I truly believe in this cooperation, especially because in this new wave of the far right, given Trumpism and Bolsonarism, there are a lot of similarities, especially in the content shared among these different groups. For example, uh, um, Alex Jones is a constant presence in Brazil's misinformation ecosystem. Infowars is translated, uh, or you know, sub captions are provided in the in the videos that go viral in Brazil. Tucker Carlson is also a, a strong presence in those groups. Um, you know, the same way that we have uh, Nicolas Fuentes, and now we're seeing. The same thing happening in the U.S. where, for example, Alain dos Santos is making uh, English videos in English to actually um, bring some of the disinformation from Brazil to the U.S. so they can feed each other in this ecosystem of disinformation. So, yes, a, a, an international cooperation should happen just because it is a global problem. It's not just a problem in Brazil and the U.S. In other countries, they all, they're also facing. I started this episode saying that disinformation is also a challenge to science and to the scientists' work. To help me discuss this specific impact, I invited Natasha Felizzi, director at Instituto Serra Pilheira. Natasha, welcome. So can you introduce yourself and explain how this information has been challenging Brazilian society when we consider science-related topics, please? Hi, Talita. Thanks for having me here. I'm Natasha Felizzi. I work as a program director at Instituto Serra Pilheira. It's a, pro a private nonprofit institution created in Brazil to support science and 
public debates around science. So we do that through supporting journalists and other, other kinds of media production. We are the first private nonprofit dedicated to supporting science in Brazil, which I think is a very interesting challenge. The past federal government in Brazil became very well known for promoting anti-science beliefs, such as denying the effectiveness of vaccines and, uh, and associating them with the spread of other diseases. This was very bad. Brazil was not the only place where this happened, but we could see uh, how dangerous this was for people, for people's lives. It's as basic as that. Um, I think also. Um, the dangers of of leaders who do who do not support science, who do not uh, listen to science when making decisions, is uh, giving groups whose uh, economic and political po power are threatened by scientific information. So when these groups are overrepresented in politics, which was the case with the past federal government in Brazil and many uh, other people in power. I think the environment becomes very challenging to science, to science, to scientists, and actually to anyone working to promote critical thinking, because the environment becomes very um, unwelcoming to this kind of thinking. It becomes very authoritarian, and it's hard to uh, to be critical in these kinds of environments. Um, I think like the most clear danger of, of these anti-science agendas were in cases of sanitary and environmental emergencies, such as the COVID-19 pandemics and the many impacts of un unregulated deforestation that happened in Brazil. But I think there are many other cases. We can go deeper in that. Um, I think when other public policy, uh, other public health policies, they don't observe science, there are consequences for everybody. Because I think When decision makers are not observing science and data, the decisions are based on anything. Then can be then they can be made based on anything that is not uh, data. It can be based on conservative moral values, for example, or economic interests of certain groups, and this might have consequences to the lives of women, for example, when you consider reproductive rights. Uh, and so on. We could spend like hours speaking about that. So I think that's very dangerous. I think one impact to democracy is when ignorance is overrepresented in power. So when this happens, the quality of the public debate decays. And those who benefit from anti-science government, they feel legitimized to act against those who are working to investigate and criticize that. So this is like, it's more than the spread of this information. It's like, it's about people in power and how they feel uh, the governments are representing or legitimizing their, their agendas. And I think what we've seen in the, in the past four years, or even a little bit before that in Brazil, was that these groups to whom uh, science is not interesting because science points out uh, problems to their interests, when they start feeling legitimized to speak up or to act violently and to get in the way of scientists or journalists who are trying to, you know, give transparency to what's happening in society, that's a very big impact. And I think this information is part of this and not the cause of this. Um, I think in such contexts, 
both scientists and journalists, they have their, their work threatened by cuts on public resources that should be funding research or, uh, you know, uh, public media that should be promoting <laughs> debates that are interesting to society. When, when these people are in power, we can observe cuts on public resources for this kind of activity and sometimes also life-threatening violence. So, you know, uh, it, it becomes harder for scientists to carry on their research, their, their research, sometimes because of the lack of resources, because universities become less welcoming environments for everything, but also sometimes by life-threatening violences uh, that we've seen, like scientists having to leave the country to continue doing their work somewhere else because what they were saying was offending uh, those in power, be it in government or economic power. So you had like, uh, I don't know, immunologists who were working and pointing out that uh, chloroquine was not having the, the effects that the government was saying it would have against COVID and this doctor had to move to another country to keep doing his research because he was being threatened every week. Com toda a certeza do Brasil, muitos óbitos poderiam ter sido evitados se não houvesse essa politização do off-label, para ser bem claro, da hidrocloroquina e da ivermectina. I think there are very concrete examples with uh, researchers like Deborah Diniz, who had to move from Brazil after receiving repeated life threats for defending women's reproductive rights in health policy. Uh, this happened already many years ago, but it's a very clear example of somebody who was, you know, bringing scientific data to inform um, health policy that affects women directly, and she had to leave. Uh, Ricardo Galvão, who, who was in charge of our National Institute of Special Research, where they monitor deforestation. And when he disclosed the deforestation data during, during Bolsonaro's government, he was fired and this yearly report was canceled. Or the infectologist that was, uh, I was commenting before, that had to leave the country and many other uh, similar cases. We could go on and on with that, with scientists and journalists being threatened, be it by the government directly or other people in other positions of power. Considering the movement we are living now, we are more concentrated on the impact of Jair Bolsonaro's government in Brazil's democracy. But as we already discussed in the first episode, the challenge come from previous events, actually. Natasha, for example, remembers a case in the early 2000s when misinformation spread fear against HPV vaccination in the north of Brazil. This is another clear example of politics and economic interests getting in the way of science and of science-based policies. Uh, the story about the HPV vaccination in Brazil is... Uh, There is a very sad chapter of this story that happens in Acre. There is this medical doctor called Maria Emilia Gadelha. And this is a clear example of an anti-science agenda. She's a medical doctor 
And at some point, she's from Sao Paulo, and at some point she went to Acre, where there was a very small community of people who were reporting uh, side effects of HPV vaccination on their kids. And it was really like a small group. And then this woman started capitalizing an anti-vax movement using these stories. And she started mobilizing this community, providing explanations about how HPV vaccines were bad and were the causes of the side effects the kids were suffering. And then after some time, like doing this kind of work, she, she financed like a conference to happen there. And one you can wonder why in Acre, that's a very remote, uh, I mean, it's a remote state in Brazil. This woman is a medical doctor. She's from the Southeast, the, the wealthy part of the country. What is she doing there, you know? And then she held this conference there to to advocate for the side effects of vaccines. And then she got this community organized around this topic. And in 2021, um, the, the anti-vax movement, uh, in 2001, she registered a civil society organization that has uh, the mission to combat uh, vaccines and to raise awareness about side effects and damages that vaccines make on people. And this is her agenda. Later on, some grantees of ours at Sahapilena, the ones who make the podcast Ciência Suja, they did this investigation in partnership with Instituto Questão de Ciência, they found out uh, she has economic interest in that too because she's a partner in a company that sells uh, ozone therapy, something that's not, uh, there is no scientific evidence of the efficacy of this treatment for many kinds of diseases. And they were trying to, to push this as a treatment for COVID so then you can see like the obscure relationships between economic interests and anti-science agendas in a very uh, untransparent way, to say the least. Natasha also illustrates that disinformation in science threats democracy as people researching or reporting about a specific topic is under threat. She mentions women's reproductive rights as a target of conservative forces. When you ignore scientific evidence about how abortion can preserve and can save women's lives, I think this is a classic example because there are many studies done about it. I think Deborah Geniz is one of the people who advocated for it. It's a matter of bioethics and there is scientific evidence about this. But the debate in Brazil and in other places the decisions are being made um, on a moral basis and sometimes on religious uh, beliefs basis. And that gets in the way of a technical discussion about how many lives of women the right to abortion could preserve. And I think this is, uh, this is science too, but it's a clear example of when um, political, ideological, 
religious and moral agendas, they get in the way of science. And this can be discussed with more or less transparency by some governments. I think when you have more transparency on this debate, it's clear <laughs> that there are groups fighting for um, a position. Uh, but when you have a far-right government or a very conservative authoritarian government, they just um, erase the data, they don't let the debate happen, they, uh, I mean, groups and people who are researching the topic uh, have to leave the country, as it happened to Deborah. So I think this is one good example of the complexity of this debate and the consequences of it for specific groups. And then this applies to the less privileged the group of women, the less access they will have to this uh, debate, to information, and even to uh, health facilities that can be more or less facilitating uh, their rights. Natasha went deeper into the why this misinformation is not just a matter of technology, but also how it's created by groups intentionally. So you can see um, many groups and many actors, they are investing a lot of money in creating uh, narratives, researches, like parallel researchers that, you know, they are funding the production of truth about climate. And this is usually with a strategy of confusion. <laughs> Um, another reporter, Giovanna Girardi, she told this, this story in a very detailed way in a podcast called Tempo Quente. And she explains how she, you know, how they, they have every piece of the chain, it's covered. So they are funding high level articulations with the government, they are financing. Uh, research that say climate change is not so dangerous or it's not always not happen or that uh, agrotoxic is not so bad for the health that there is no scientific evidence about this so they are by basically financing the production of ignorance about something that's uh, already reasonably uh, consensual uh, in the scientific community and i think this is the logic behind every disinformation because sometimes when we think about this information we think about the technical part of it we think about the internet we think about the platforms and of course this is a very important part of it like regulating platforms or having more uh, accountability on the way they let this kind of information pass but i think it's also important to to acknowledge that this information is uh, created by people because it represents them somehow it represents the, their beliefs, their political beliefs, or their economic economic interests, or their mor moral belief. And this is uh, hard to deal with, because <laughs> when you realize there there is people defending that, and they believe in that, how can you go there and say, um, you know, the point where I stand, science is better than the system of belief you created for, for yourself. So it's a very challenging situation. And I think it's a um, multi, how do you say, um, it's not a technical problem. This information is not 
only a technological issue. It's a system of belief issue and the concept, the political context we are living is not helping in solving this kind of tension. Maybe we're asking why we went deeper on the problems as the series intends to discuss the future of democracy. In order to find possible solutions for these questions, I asked Nimmer if he thinks the new government and the society are already ready to address these challenges. Here is what he said. For the first time in, in Brazil, where the Ministry of Communications of the government is having a specific secretary to deal with disinformation. So just to have that gives us a sense that the government and Lula is concerned about disinformation and something should be done. Um, the problem is that we have to rely on Congress to make these sort of laws. And we know that Brazil's Congress is a mess, right? It's very um, eclectic, to say the least. We have people from all kinds of, of, of views, all kinds of views in terms of free speech, even though you know they don't match with the constitutional understanding of free speech, but they do believe that you know Brazil has an absolute free speech model, which we don't. So it'll be a challenge for the government to work with Congress to make uh, laws and regulations that will be fair when dealing with this issue of disinformation, but also uh, platform regulations. So I think it is a, a somewhat of a priority because we finally see something being done to deal with this. It's hard for me to say if it's at its highest priority just because Lula has inherited uh, a, a bunch of crises as we're seeing in Brazil right now with the Anonamis, with the indigenous folks that, you know, they were left completely unattended without any help. So there's a health crisis going on over there. Uh, the economy is not doing well. So if you really inherited a mess, and there's a lot of stuff that need to be uh, fixed. Uh, for example, Brazil has about 33 million people under the line of poverty. You know, they don't have what to eat. So this is certainly a priority. Uh, and when we compare all that to this information, uh, we know how this information can be harmful. But at the same time, priority should be those who are facing hunger. In any case, I'm just trying to paint here the, the scenario of the current state of the country and the current state of, you know, what Lula actually inherited. But, in, in, but by having such secretary to deal specifically with this information, it shows that uh, Lula is concerned and something will be done on that front. As we could see, misinformation has a huge impact on democracy and institutions. To address this problem, the government, civil society and experts are already proposing solutions. As our guests suggested, this is a complex problem that requires multiple approaches. This will be discussed in the next episode. This project is planned and executed by Brazil Institute. The coordinator is Fernando Santos, and the production, script, and narration were done by me, Talita Fernandes. Oscar Cruz was responsible for editing and the sound effects. Stay tuned. See you soon. 
The Brazil Institute podcast is produced and edited by Oscar Cruz. To learn more, visit our website, www.wilsoncenter.org/brazil. Until next time, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.